Okay, they decided to have a hard-charging corporate culture. Okay, so what? But of course, the catch is that, that the data enables that kind of hard-chargingness, and it, it allows managers to justify that behavior, right? They would do it with or without data. Exactly. This is not a function of the data that they can collect. This is a function of what their mentality is and yeah. how they think about their employees. It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. On this week's show, a look at how data and tracking are changing the modern American workplace. It can make companies more profitable. It can also make workers feel like efficiency comes before their humanity. We'll discuss with two researchers who think about the changing nature of employment. But before we talk about your work, a quick look at the work that the GOP candidates for president are doing. It's a number that caught our eye this week the significant digit. Can I tell you a number? A number, yes. The number is 99, which is the number of counties in Iowa. And the candidates for president are all running around Iowa right now. And Rick Santorum has gone to all 99. He actually did it uh, last time as well. Scott Walker has pledged that he too is going to try and go to all 99 counties in Iowa. You know, I just came back from vacation and I, um, I mean, I know who I want to win and I know who I don't want to run and that's sort of like what I'm... It's only people in Iowa and New Hampshire who are really paying attention at, the, at this moment, but um, would you ever go to 99 counties in Iowa? Mm-mm. If I ran for president or, or in general, no, I probably wouldn't. If you ran for president, would you yeah, pledge why? to go to all 99 counties in Iowa? Um, I don't know if that would be the best way to spend my Oh, come on, just just, just pledge. You might as well, right? <laughs> I, I'm not sure that would be the best way to spend my energy as a, as a candidate. That's Tatiana Newman, and this is Micah Cohen, politics editor at 538, to talk a little bit more about Iowa and its 99 counties. Micah, can you name them all? We have the time. Well, let's let's do the interview first. We'll come back and we'll name them all. Okay. But seriously, as she mentioned, uh, she if she were a candidate, she would think visiting all 99 counties is a waste of time. But is this actually important? So it's not a waste. I wouldn't say it's a waste of time. Um, and I would say it is important in the sense of campaigning, meeting voters, particularly voters in Iowa, New Hampshire, they expect to be uh, to meet these candidates, to talk to them, to hear their positions. You know, going to 99 counties as opposed to 98 or 97, I don't think that's important. I don't think... But I don't know if I agree with you that 90 is the same as 99, because when you say 99, that's a talking point. I mean, that's what got our attention. It becomes a, a media narrative. It does get you a certain amount of media attention. But I think more important than that is when Centorum goes to these counties, it's not just him. It's his campaign. They are not just giving a speech there. They're getting email addresses. So it's important to go out and, and, and find these voters and kind of set up the campaign infrastructure. Iowa is obviously still important, but I do wonder if being in Iowa is that important. I mean, is the role of cable news and social media, does it, does it mean that less and less candidates need to actually be on the ground if so much of the fighting is happening on cable news? So the, that's a tough question, and it's such a new phenomenon—not cable news, really, but social media—that um, I think it's hard to say. My gut reaction, and you know, we try not to go by gut at five thirty-eight, but my gut reaction is, yes, it still matters. That if one of these candidates decided not to show up in any of these states, uh, it would not go over well. You know, you look at some past candidates, Fred Thompson, for example. 
um, in 2008 who joined the Republican race late, he kind of went nowhere. And it was because he was kind of like a candidate in name only and wasn't really doing the kind of dirty work necessary, like visiting a bunch of counties to do well. You know, Joe Biden might confront, if Joe Biden gets in the race, uh, he might confront a similar problem of it's hard to accomplish late and it's hard to accomplish if, if, if you don't have roots in the state. Micah Cohen, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Last month, like a lot of people, I read the big New York Times piece on workers at Amazon and was kind of stunned. The report painted a picture of employees who were constantly monitored and tracked and a brutal work culture that demanded you be on call at all hours. Let's expand that conversation now beyond Amazon with two people who look at how data is used in the modern workplace and what it says about how we think about labor in America today. Andrew McAfee is co-founder of the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy and co-author of The Second Machine Age. Zainab Tun is an adjunct associate professor in the Operations Management Group at MIT Sloan. Her most recent book is The Good Jobs Strategy. Andrew McAfee, Zainab Tun, welcome both of you to 538. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. So I was wondering if we could start with trying to tease out a specific example. We don't have to name a specific company, but maybe a specifically fictional company and talk about how data enters the workplace, uh, both for workers and managers, and maybe how that's different from in the past. So, Andrew, what kind of workplace should we conjure up or what, what, what's, where is this happening in the most interesting ways? Let me give you a couple examples, one primarily about a management function and one about a frontline function. And what we're learning from some really interesting recent work is that the hiring practices that most companies have are pretty terrible. This process of I'm going to get some kind of resume or a CV in, I'm going to invite a person for a few rounds of interviews, and my colleagues in management and I are going to make a decision about hiring that person or not based on that body of evidence, that that body of data. Uh, we know that really does not work very well. And interviews are pretty badly broken the way they're normally done because what you normally conclude is I should hire that person if that person reminds me of me. So, Zainab, can you just jump in here on that question? Because being aware of your biases is not something that needs to happen when you have data. That's just kind of the mark of a humane person and a, a good manager and someone who's just self-aware. I, I can't say that I'm an expert on this topic of human biases, but I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that even very nice people tend to have these biases when they come across a person for the first time. I appreciate you going towards an example of how data is, is changing for the better because there's all this hemming and hawing about how data is really creating unstable workplaces. But just specifically on that question of hiring, you're talking about when looking at resumes, uh, anonymizing some of the names and some of the demographic information so that you're really working with comparable data points? I mean, how does that specifically manifest itself? Sure. That's one thing you can do because we know, for example, that, again, we bring these biases, either conscious or unconscious, to a lot of interactions and a lot of decisions that we have to make. So very famous piece of research a while back noted that once orchestras started doing blind auditions, the number of women in the orchestra went way up. In mm -hmm. other words, people were, were judging women musicians much more harshly than their male counterparts. So we need to, to try to, to 
first of all, be aware of our biases, and second of all, take all the steps we can to deal with them. And I just have this faith that, what do you want to call it, data or information or evidence, is our one of our prime tools for doing that. So let's advance this a little bit. Maybe uh, a data-driven hiring practice has led to uh, a more diverse workplace and, and more opportunities for people when we actually now have our workers and they're coming to our to our company. Want to talk a little bit about how data is integrated into the day-to-day management of a workplace? Yeah. So let me give you an example about frontline work. I did some research a little while back with two colleagues, Lamar Pierce and Dan Snow, and we had the chance to watch what happened when a bunch of um, fairly low price point table service restaurants suddenly acquired the ability to monitor their employees at work with amazing precision. So in a restaurant these days, employees, servers need to use the point of sale terminals for almost anything that happens in a restaurant, for getting food out of the kitchen, for getting a check printed, for getting the bill paid, for all of that stuff. And the company that builds these systems, NCR, realized they had this amazing treasure trove of data. It was up in the cloud, but very few restaurants have the time or the expertise to sit around, put that all in Excel and analyze the heck out of it. So NCR said, we're going to roll this out as a service to our restaurants and we're going to send out regular updates of red flags, of uh, activity on the part of frontline servers and first-line managers that's really hard to ascribe to anything except an attempt to rip off the restaurant. And what we noticed was that the volume of activity per week was not that great in dollar terms. When you say volume of activity, you mean the amount that these restaurants were being egregiously ripped off by their employees? Yeah, the the amount of what looked like pretty clear instances of theft was really not very much on the order of tens or hundreds of dollars a week. The amount of revenue increase per week was on the order of thousands of dollars. And the the only conclusion we could reach was once this technology went into place, it wasn't that uh, people suddenly had their instances of clear theft highlighted. It was that they realized that there was a different regime of monitoring of awareness in place at the restaurant. And to say it pretty succinctly, they straightened up and flew right a lot better than they were doing before. And you can start to think how horrible that is. And we were just uh, just working these servers uh, to the bone. The interesting other data point that we had was that the tip percentage actually went up in these locations. Another way in which it can help workers is that through data, you can have very objective evaluation of their effort and the outcome of their effort. Sometimes um, monitoring is done by supervisors or whoever that person reports to, and that person, again, might have biases in in, in their evaluation and might might favor some people over the others. When you have hard data to make decisions on who to promote, uh, how to evaluate performance, it can be very helpful both for the workers and for the company. I understand what you're saying about being evaluated and sort of having a path to promotion. But do you worry, though, about how the workers would actually feel in that big brotherness of adopting a monitoring practice like that? I think it really depends on the environment, on the context. If the data-driven approach is 
adopted in an environment where there is trust between the workers and the management and there is a good work environment, then people can see the benefits um, much better. If it's if it's adopted in an environment where there is already a bad relationship between worker and management, I can see how it could be a big brother type of um, of reaction. And one thing that we've observed over and over is people tend to freak out when they hear about these kinds of things. They tend to fade into the background and become the new normal very, very quickly. Yeah, and I will give you another example from um, from a more traditional company, which has been using data for a long time, uh, UPS. Uh, when you are a UPS driver, everything about you is tracked. I mean, how, when you entered the car, how fast you drove, whether you put on the seatbelt or not, how many left turns you made. Uh, I imagine that there are some UPS drivers that are not very happy about this tracking. But overall, this level of tracking enabled UPS to be more efficient, enabled the, 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 the drivers to have fewer accidents and create an overall positive environment. That is not to say that everybody likes it. Um, there will be some people who will still believe that this is a big brother watching. Um, and not every workplace is suitable for every employee. To think about the the path that this data collection walks us down, where is the line for the two of you for a company like our this restaurant case study you were mentioning or a UPS? Where is the line of what is acceptable to monitor and what is a violation of privacy or a violation of rights or just simply taking Big Brother too far and it becomes counterproductive. Let me give you a couple examples of that. Uh, in the restaurant example, let's say that they had an email account. Uh, I am not sure that the restaurant should monitor everyone's email and uh, and intervene if they see something they don't like. I don't know how the interests of the restaurant are being served by that. But that's so funny that you mentioned that because to me that reading everything that is in your work email feels like standard practice at this point. I mean, that's where I would have started in terms of listing. Yeah, maybe it's just because the two of us work in academia and that's not, as far as I know, MIT is not doing that to us. I think it's completely appropriate in banking, for example. But you work at a restaurant. Okay, the restaurant probably has the right. The server is their property. The email account is their property. Are they well served you mean by server, mo- computer server? Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you for that. I mean the computer server, not the human being. Um, th- that, that, piece of gear is the restaurant's property. So do they have the right? Probably. Are they well served by it? I don't know. And apart from that, I think when we think about using data and using analysis, we have to set very clear boundaries for what that data are going to be used for. Because there are certain um, certain situations where I can see being analysis and data being dangerous. One is when the results of an analysis in some ways hurts the worker and their morale um, and or, 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 or is inconsistent with the company values, I think it's very important that we put the clear values boundaries um, in, in the environment. Similarly, you could make certain decisions that will hurt workers. Retailers, one of the things that they do is they use data to track customer traffic and they try to schedule their employees so that there are a lot of employees when the customers are there and there are very few employees when customers are not there. Now, the result of this, their objective function here is to minimize that 
supply demand mismatch between labor tra- labor supply and and customer traffic but when your objective function is that what ends up happening is providing your employees their schedules one or two weeks in advance and changing those schedules in the last minute right and th- now you might find some efficiency improvements from that but at the end it hurts pr- people's lives and it leads to low morale which leads to mistakes etc that second one that Zainab just brought up is one of my favorite ones because yeah. i understand the efficiency argument from the company we want to match supply to demand we want our employees in there when there are a ton of customers and not there when there are not a ton of customers and with the new technologies and tools that we have we can start to predict with a lot more accuracy a fairly short time in advance. Is it going to be sunny? Are more people going to come in? Do we need to staff up very quickly? And then they start to treat their employees as this kind of on-demand resource that has to be available on very, very short notice. But why do you push back against that practice, but then say uh, UPS should be able to monitor at all times uh, where their employees are? Aren't those on the same spectrum and come from that same interest in optimization and efficiency? From the employer's point of view, I think they might spring from a fairly common desire or, or, or a similar desire. From the employee's point of view, they're, they're night and day different. They're in totally separate categories. One is, what are the rules of the game when I show up to work? The other one is, what are the rules of the game about when they get to tell me to show up for work? But if you, as you put it, say that every time there's a new level of monitoring uh, that goes into place, it becomes the new normal. And as you said, people adjust. That's the fear that every time there's a new normal and then you push a little more and it becomes the new normal. And then all of a sudden you're at the place where the new normal is. I don't get my work schedule until a day before. Yes. But where, so where is that? Where is the line that, that needs to be drawn? But to Jody, stop I think that line has to be drawn at a much higher level. Mm-hmm. At a higher level, I think what we need to change is management's mentality around what the workforce is about and whether we're going to use them, treat them as interchangeable parts or whether we're going to create a whole um, whole strategy around them. And mm-hmm. in general, I believe really firmly in free contracting as a principle. You want to do this, I want to do this, we should be allowed to do this, especially if we're consenting adults, and there shouldn't be the heavy hand of the state looking over that and passing judgment on it. So in general, I believe in that as a really important bedrock principle. This yanking around entry-level people on very short notice, that might actually be, in my eyes, a big enough problem that we need to, if the companies aren't as enlightened as the, the best ones that Zainab has studied, if they're not willing to treat their people uh, decently on their own, then we might need to get out the heavy hand of legislation and say, look, you just can't do this. In the same way that back in the old days, we told airlines that they could no longer fire stewardesses once they got married. We said, "That's I'm sorry, it's just not allowed. Right. Or we told workers that they could unionize and, and have yeah. collective bargaining right. and stand up and, and draw those lines together. If, if we let the technologies dictate our values, we've got it deeply backward. A lot of the examples that you've given are um, in blue collar industries or in service industries. And I want us to shift a little bit to how this is changing maybe what is referred to as white-collar work. And in particular, a lot of people read that story about Amazon and how they use data and just kind of have a culture of monitoring and 24-7, you know, you your life belongs to us. So 
how much do you see the consternation about the rise of data in the workplace being about the fact that it's bleeding into into white collar work? There were, there were two aspects to the Amazon story as I read it. One was about how data-driven they are as a culture. The other one is about how hard-charging they are as yeah. a culture. And I thought the first of those was kind of interesting. Amazon has tried very hard to be a data-driven culture. The second of those, my reaction was kind of, eh, Okay, they decided to have a hard-charging corporate culture. Okay, so what? But, of course, the catch is that, that the data enables that kind of hard-chargingness, and, and, it, and it allows managers to justify that it, behavior, right? They would do it with or without data. Exactly. This is not a function of the data that they can collect. This is a function of what their mentality is and yep. how they think about their employees. In that setting, it doesn't seem like employees are that important. Turnover is high, but they've designed a whole system around high turnover and no one can say that this is not a successful organization. You've said very eloquently that the data is just a tool and it does still feel like the data can enable if inside every manager there's a a humane manager and a ruthless manager the data was enabling that more ruthless side to come out. And if you think about this from a manager's perspective and they have the ability to monitor at all times and keep someone on the clock, then even not a sociopath would take advantage of that, right? And would say, oh, I can see that someone is putzing around for 28 minutes on their computer, so I'm going to, what, ignore that? No, I'm going to call that out. Or if I have the ability to get in touch with someone and ask them to be in communication 24 hours a day, then I can take advantage of that. So that's, I think, the slippery slope of data that made a lot of people feel uneasy when they read that piece. Yeah, I agree. Just like how data... Um, and having access to very um, intricate levels of data enabled these workforce scheduling practices at, at, at companies. Um, if used the wrong way, they, data can ena- enable these ruthless practices. So we need to set some clear boundaries on how to use the data um, and what data to use. Especially, again, for our lower-level workers who typically don't have the power in bargaining relationships and, and therefore might get taken, of, taken advantage of more. You sort of hinted at the fact that there could be another way that Amazon could still be as successful as they are. So do you have examples of other companies that are a little more humane and are just as successful as Amazon? Um, it's... it's hard to compare anyone to Amazon, right, in terms of growth, um, yeah. in terms of what they've achieved. But I've looked at low-cost retail, like the the, the the last place where you would expect good jobs and humane work environments, places like supermarkets, uh, convenience store chains. And I found that while most companies in that industry offered bad jobs, you know, poverty-level wages, unstable schedules that work all the time, few opportunities for success and growth. Um, There were a group of companies that took a very different approach. They created a whole system around very capable, motivated workers. And the result was not only good jobs for employees, you know, decent wages, predictable schedules, opportunities for success and growth, meaning and dignity in what you do. Not only good for workers, but also extremely high performance for the investors and low prices and good jobs for customers. So there are absolutely different ways to get to uh, the objective of creating high financial success in the same industry. Were the, so, Zainab, were the companies you studied typically pretty data-driven or, or was were they not? Oh, they were pretty data-driven. And when you're talking about, you know, monitoring, um, collecting data, I mean, one of my examples is QuickTrip. QuickTrip is a convenience store chain with gas stations. 
Fortunes. They have been in Fortune's 100 best companies to work for 13 years in a row. Uh, they have cameras, video cameras mm-hmm. in their stores on par with banks because they mm-hmm. can monitor every single transaction, who was at the cash register when and how much money they took in. Um, they have mystery shoppers that go to wow. these stores every week to evaluate whether people are doing what they're supposed to do. They have supervisors going to the stores all the time. This is a very high-performance High expectation environment, yet people love it. They love to be when you set say up people, for who do you mean? People, frontline employees, the cashiers, the, the 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 people working the front lines. They love this environment. And Zainab's and, work brings up this really important insight, which is that being data driven is not the same thing as being heartless at all. And I come across too many people who conflate those two. I think it's a big mistake. Andrew, I want to go back to something you mentioned about Amazon, and you said that if they want to have a hard-charging workplace, that's their prerogative. I'm assuming you then also think that if workers want to push back in some way, that's their prerogative as well. So how do workers in an environment like that change the normal? Well, they do it by becoming the management of the company over time and by in this case, hopefully, using data to show that some of the practices are backfiring or are counterproductive. And of course, this becomes an issue of who's got the power in the relationship. And one of the reasons, as I said earlier, that I might favor legislation about these uh, these very erratic schedules is that the frontline workers typically don't have a lot of power and, and it feels like less so over time for a lot of companies. So Amazon's sure. warehouse workers are probably in a different category than the managers in Seattle and have a different ability to influence the direction of the company. I want to uh, talk about one other thing and then we can sort of start to, to, to wrap up but uh, and that's this we've been nibbling at it but this trade-off between ruthless efficiency and optimization and happiness and productivity that stems from that and it kind of feels like we're in this unfortunate middle ground where we figured out how to measure the stuff that leads to can lead to like a downside you know measuring when someone's not on the clock or when measuring when someone's looking at something that's not work related on their computer we haven't figured out how to quantify things like happiness and camaraderie and all those other sort of more intangible things so do you envision a time when there's just like a data point on every element that goes into making a good workplace uh, it's technically feasible right now to do something like, let's say you're running a call center and you can and you want to monitor employee morale. The technologies exist right now for you to listen in on your employees, not for the words that they're saying, but for their tone, for their affect. And you can get a very clear signal about whether they're having a good time uh, in their jobs that day, that part of the organization or not. So to answer your question, I, I really see a not too distant future at all where we can start to get a lot more faithful signals about, you know, h- how are we doing? How are the people in this company feeling? Yeah, but I think that one of the things we have to be very careful about is performance management systems because there are certain things that are much easier to measure measure, and there are certain things that are not easy to measure. And they will remain to be 
difficult to measure, intangibles, especially in service environments. So if we put too much attention on the things mm-hmm. that we can measure in our performance management systems, then we will go into those systems where we start seeing people as interchangeable parts. So, so we can't ignore those just because they're hard to measure or we can't measure them. Andrew McAfee and Zainab Tan, thank you so much. And may all your future bosses be humane but rational. Thank you for having us. Thanks a lot, Jody. You can find links to Andrew and Zainab's books and their blogs on our website, 538.com. That Amazon piece, by the way, was reported by Jody Cantor and David Streitfeld of The New York Times. If you haven't read it, there's also a link on our site. If you have any stories about how data is used at your workplace, drop us a line, podcasts at 538.com. This is definitely an issue we're going to keep reporting on. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel with help from Jordan Shulkin. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. My name is Jody Avergan. I'm on Twitter at Jody Avergan. You can email me again, podcasts at 538.com. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, who also hosts the excellent Song Exploder podcast. Check it out in the iTunes store. While you're there, look up What's the Point and give us a rating and a review. Thank you to everyone who has left reviews lately. We read them and we take all your advice to heart. Thanks for listening. See you soon. What's the Point listeners? I'm Chadwick Matlin. I'm Kate Fagan. I'm Neil Payne. And together we make up the crew of Hot Takedown, 538 Sports Podcast. Kate, how would you describe the show if you had to do it in like five seconds? It's freaking awesome. Okay, Neil? We take down hot takes. Look at that. That's we- sort of the title. Good point. So if you want to hear us talk about the week in sports news and what people are talking about in an uninformed way and hear about the data and the stats and the analytics that take them down, subscribe in the iTunes store. Search for Hot Takedown to find us. We'll talk to you then. Do it.